Okay, we're on page 17. So under the category of naturalism, what is their view of history? So the naturalist says then that history is a system of cause and effect. That history has no ultimate meaning. So we as Christians might say, well, when we speak of history, we might speak of his story, God's story, or God's redemptive movements, or something like that. But for the naturalist, and it makes sense within their system, it's just a system of cause and effect. It has no ultimate meaning. But again, I, uh, what about meaning period? Again, we can talk about, well, there's no transcendent meaning, no ultimate meaning. Well, is there any meaning? Naturalists would say, yeah. I think they're going to struggle with telling you where it comes from. So, uh, I, I've, been to de- I've uh, listened in on debates with um, atheists, for instance, which is one subcategory of naturalists. And uh, one fellow said, well, meaning is sort of just self-derived. It's as a result of the human experience. We interact with one another over thousands of years, and we sort of know what it takes for our uh, species to exist. So we adopt certain systems of morality that kind of work and to keep people alive we don't just randomly go kill each other murder each other Um, we frown on telling lies because political systems family structures break down if you just kind of permit that kind of stuff so it's all just sort of a it's all just sort of natural selection or result of random processes um there's probably some flaws in that way of thinking because, I mean, one, one big question is why don't we see uh, a similar kind of morality among other creatures? So why do we have certain creatures that are quite comfortable eating each other and not disciplining each other for it? And in fact, when we see them eat each other, we don't view that as a moral problem. So if you're out in the, on, on a safari and you see a big old lion kill and eat another lion, you're not like, you know, let's get the judge out, let's take this lion to court, this is a moral evil. You may be grossed out by it, but your mind doesn't automatically go to, this is a a breach of of morality. There's a creature within a species killing another creature within that species. Or if you're walking on the sidewalk and you see a big old black ant, and he walks by the nest of some red ants, and they all attack him and kill him. You're not like, oh. you know, we got to call the judge. This is immoral. You're like, who cares? Probably step on the whole bunch. <laughs> but then we have, we, we react to murder among human beings, war, that kind of stuff even. We react to killing. So the question is, why do we apply a different standard of right and wrong to one another than we do to other supposedly evolved creatures within the created order. Or, uh, I don't know about you, but if I like just leave my kids at home by themselves, things don't become more orderly. <laughs> they don't sort of look at life and say, you know what, it's, it's to my sister's advantage to do the dishes so she has a nice clean cereal bowl. It's to my advantage to clean my room. You know, it's to my advantage to speak clearly. Like, it, it becomes on time pandemonium. And, uh, you know, there's stories of 
uh, groups of people that might have been lost or who have been uh, alienated from broader groups of human beings for centuries, certain tribes. Generally, when you go see them, they're not more ordered, they're less ordered than people who have greater exposure. So the question is, in, in, um, among humans, let's call ourselves the human species, I'm not really sure that we have a great deal of interest in orderliness, in caring for each other, in looking out for our fellow man, unless there's some knowledge or acknowledgement of accountability from a higher power, however you define that higher power, or some sense of conscience that drives your decision-making capabilities. So, uh, you know, sociologically, it would be interesting if, if Christian sociologists who observe human behavior were to evaluate some of this as well. Regarding ethics, ethics is the study of what's right and what's wrong. Ethics, according to the naturalists, are derived solely from human experience. So we observe life. There is no ultimate source to morality. Ethics are an agreed-upon way to inspire harmony among ourselves. And yet, interestingly, there are certain aspects of human ethics that have not changed for thousands of years. There's others that have changed generally when there's a shift in worldview in a culture, a shift in worldview or belief about God. That often causes a society to change its ethics, but it's not so much they just change it because, well, this works better for us. It generally comes out of some sort of a shift in worldview. All human actions as well as physical events are necessary results of antecedents that are themselves necessary. The moral law with its ethical distinction of right and wrong conduct, is not an objective norm. That actually sounds a lot like postmodernism. But as mere, a mere subjective result of associations and instincts evolved from experience of the useful and the agreeable or of the harmful and the painful consequences of certain moral actions. So do you understand what's being said there? that we just sort of agreed on certain things as being right and wrong. We've already commented on this to some degree, and that's where moral ethics come from. So, how would you respond to someone that would say, okay, I think that morals, because you're telling me, you know, morals indicate there's a moral being, or values indicate there's a God who gives us values, how would you respond to someone that says, I think it's just a result of random selection. We just sort of have agreed over the centuries in our progress from uh, single-celled organisms to apes to Neanderthals to humans, whatever your timeline is. We just sort of agreed that these things are right and these things are wrong. How, how would you respond to the idea that values and ethics are just sort of culturally derived? John? Can you hear John in the back? Okay, good. Okay. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Did you guys hear that at the back? Okay, good. So if the Nazis, I'm just going to repeat it maybe for the sake of the recording. So if, if the Nazis had won the war and every one of us said the Nazis were right, would that have made the Nazis right? A naturalist should conclude what? They are right. And I, I would think even a naturalist would feel quite uncomfortable saying that. Other ideas. How would you respond to someone that says values and ethics are just cultural, culturally decided, just a result of natural selection? Because you're going to meet people like this. How do you, what do you say? Yeah, Jonathan? Okay, good. So you have, to, you have to be very precise. There's a consistent view of right or wrong. Doesn't mean there's a consistent application of it. You're going to find tribes that are hacking each other's heads off. But they get mad at each other for that, strangely. They don't like to be murdered. It's not considered acceptable. So you, you will find people groups that murder more. You may find some that lie more. <laughs> I mean, you guys do understand, by the way, that culture is not neutral. I hope you understand that. Uh, this is a confusing thing for we Canadians. We don't understand the difference between ethnicity and culture. These are not the same things. Your ethnicity is your DNA, your skin color, your genetics. You're not responsible for that. And you're neither better nor worse than anyone else, depending on your skin color, your tone, that kind of stuff. But culture is not neutral. So we, we can critically analyze Western culture from a Christian worldview, just like we can critically analyze African culture, Asian culture, South Asian culture, European culture, or any little groups within that. So culture, we, we often talk about being multicultural. I'm not a multiculturalist. I'm a multi-ethnicist. I believe that all people of all ethnic groups are valuable, but I don't fly the flag of every culture. Because there's certain things in my culture I can't stand. <laughs> and there's certain things in other cultures that drive me nuts too. So... Within cultural constructs, we see inconsistencies, but at the heart of the matter, we see some basic foundational considerations, uh, guideposts, whatever you want to call them, ideas of right and wrong that do seem to, broadly speaking, disturb people. Now, you might say, well, how come we've seen a, a, a massive change in sexual ethics within the Western world? For instance, the... Uh, previous generations would have taken a different position on homosexuality than many generations today. But notice in that shift, there's been a huge fight, 
And among those, for instance, that are proponents of homosexuality, there is a massive amount of money and energy put into trying to validate it as what? Right. That's a moral word. So there is a sense in which we got to prove ourselves to be right. And others, of course, are trying to prove themselves to be right. So really, it's not so much of a sexual fight. It's a moral fight. It's a desire to redefine or try to figure out what is truly right or wrong. And people are very passionate about whether you affirm them to be right or wrong. So with, for, for example, when I have conversations with homosexuals, uh, I mean, I have never myself and I've never heard any Christian uh, killing homosexuals or, you know, walking into their houses and pulling them apart or abusing them. I mean, obviously that takes place out there, but that's, gen that's not what the church is doing that I know of. But when you speak out and say, well, I don't agree with that choice, that's what they find to be offensive. No one's saying you can't be homosexual in Canada. No one's trying to legislate against it that I know of. But if you just de declare it to be a choice that you don't agree upon morally, you get a lot of reaction. Well, even there, it shows that people have concerns for that which is moral, that which is immoral, that which is acceptable, that which is unacceptable. We could show other examples where there's been debates, uh, heated debates over the nature of certain moral things where people will not be swayed. So there's a sense of... Um, there's a sense of uh, uh, absolutes. Uh, people want to be either absolutely right or they're okay with being absolutely wrong within most societies, maybe all societies. Anything else that you would say to someone that says, well, ethics are just kind of culturally derived? conscience yeah yeah and then we have Romans 1 that says we do our best to suppress it to drown it so people will it, it, we shouldn't be surprised when people try to resist <laughs> discussions about morality the Bible says they will it's not it's like wow this guy's resisting morality well no the Bible says that's gonna happen but why resist something you don't really care less about that's also what concerns me or interests me why, why do people why do people want to be right about being wrong why do you care what difference does it make if there's no right and wrong? I've been, I've been taking uh, the tendency to, to talk about, not many people want to hear it, want to talk about it, about the enemy of God. The angels that have the enemy of God. Mm -hmm. Why people decide to, to choose that, to walk that way. And why? Because there is 
a long, a long, very long history about why we choose to go this way or this way. But I believe <coughs> that if the enemy of God will influence everything in mm -hmm. human yeah. to, to gain the soul, the spirit. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Like the kingdom of God against the, the world. Oh, for sure. The, the enemy is taken. That is the difference. Yeah. It's a spiritual battle. And you know, that's why we talk about prayer. You can't talk someone into a relationship with, with the Lord. But you can be the human mouthpiece that's used to perhaps remove some blinders or some barriers. Just like in preaching, God uses human instruments, like me and others that teach and preach, to bring his truths to people. Well, they could read it in their own Bible. They don't have to come to church to have access to the Bible. But there's a sense in which sometimes when it's spoken, that it, it impacts you in a certain way. Good. Any other con uh, comments, questions? Yeah, Joe? One of the things that I've done in the past is uh, use the concept of relative morality. So, you know, ask somebody who says, you know, there's no absolute right or wrong. So, okay, so, you know, we understand that, you know, procreation is a result of sexual intercourse. So, why wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. as opposed to choosing a single mate. And that's sort of the cultural norm, is to have a single mate. And mm -hmm. you know, develop a family unit and that sort of thing. So, so why would we do that if you know, we're looking at a relative morality and animals will do the opposite? Mm -hmm. And uh, often I don't get a, there's very uh, limited arguments for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Did you guys hear them in the back too? Okay, Dela. Right. Right. And, and that's true. In very recent times, basically in our lifetimes, but it's still recent compared to most of human history, there has been a revival, at least in our culture, with moral relativism. And we will talk about the deficits of moral relativism later on. Um, there's obviously a, uh, there obviously are inconsistencies in moral relativism, but uh, one of the arguments one could use uh, against moral relativism is the fact that while it might work temporarily for the individual, it's actually a proven fact that it doesn't work long-term for all. 
So for instance, what I would like to do, I'd like this, this class to put up your hands if one of the following scenarios is part of your history. Your parents, either one of your parents were divorced, or you have been divorced, or your children have been divorced, or one of your brothers and sisters have been divorced. So some immediate family members. So let's just raise our hands. I'm putting my hand up. Now keep your hands up if that was an enjoyable experience and a positive part of your history. No, there's no hands up. And I bet you if I had asked that question of a bunch of non-theists that the hands would have all gone down as well. There might have been some knucklehead out there that just wants to be argumentative that would have kept it up. But the point is, is you know, the Bible has some, something to say about that relational, about marriage, for instance, and what happens when relationships break down. Or we could ask other questions. I could ask the same question, how many of you have stolen, had someone steal your stuff, or had a close friend? How'd that work for you? Uh, how many of you have been sexually abused? How'd that work for you? And why do we even call it abuse, by the way? That's a moral term. Uh, on and on. How many of you have been lied to? How did that feel? How many of you have, uh, you know, we could go on and on and on. We could go down the list and basically label what we would call traditional values within Christianity and say, what does it feel like? How, how, does it help, how does it affect your life when those things are not present? And the answer is always, it's bad. Now, on the other hand, we could say, you know, how many of you are experiencing an intact marriage where there's love and respect? And you put your hands up. How's that working for you? Is it good? Your hands stay up. How many of you have found that when you forgive a person, there's a sense of weight that's lifted from you? Yeah, that's good. Uh, and we could go down the list and name off all m positive moral virtues. And we would all agree that they actually are quite livable. They actually work quite well. Even if when we first are exposed to them, we may resist them or not understand them, when we actually practice them, they work well. So there is, a, 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 <clears throat> I think, an apologetic within the livability of the Christian faith and its values and principles, it is actually quite powerful. And we're going we're gonna to go through periods in human history where people swing and they're like, you know what, let's just throw this away and that. Let's throw away traditional marriage values because this is more fun or this is more freeing or this is, you know, whatever else. Well, it, it just doesn't work. You got disease, you got broken relationships, wounded children, confusion, and on and on. It just doesn't work. So there's a live, you can appeal to the livability of the Christian faith by asking multiple times the kind of question I just asked you. And that's one way of sort of appealing it. Well, you know, uh, I may not like it, but it's kind of hard to deny that it works. And let me just, sorry, let me just say one more thing, Dela. That's why we should be quite content to say that at times we're hypocrites, because we should affirm the fact that it's wrong not to live our faith and it doesn't work. So if we're, if we're not living according to Christian values, but we're not admitting it, we're saying that not living according to Christian values, in a sense, works. But if you're a little more open and say, yeah, you know what, I, I did freak out at such and such, and, and it's, I'm sorry, it's not working, then it's like, okay, there's a sense of honesty. The person's consistent. They're recognizing that they, in part, gravitate towards certain moral choices because they work and are right. But if we deny it, but people know we're living in sin they rightly accuse us of being hypocrites and 
we detract from our witness. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's, that's just a, within Christian theology, that's just plain old rebellion and sin. It's not, it, saying I'm going to sin because it feels good is, it's not logic. It's not scientific. It's not, it's not anything. It's just, it's rebellion. So there's not, there's not really a logical argument you can use to talk someone out of that because it's not really a logical choice. It's more, this feels good. I'm going to go do it. Now, there's arguments that you can use against the it feels good, I'm going to go do it argument, but it requires some measure of willingness on the person's part to listen, to consider the consequences of their choices, how it affects other people's relationships, and some measure of respect for the existence of a God. So if there's a God, then there's going to be presumably some responsibility for the choices that one makes. So you kind of got to go back up the ladder and maybe start there again instead of getting right on the specific issue of a plural marriage, for instance. Obviously, there are situations in the Bible where people are committing acts that are um, either flat-out morally sinful or less than ideal. But even the ones, even in situations where God, in a sense, accommodates stupidity for a period of time, it's never positive. Like, people say, well, the Bible has... Polygamists, well, that's true, but I'd like you to find me one text in the Bible where polygamy results in good things. Because in every one of them, there's a jealous woman or a stupid guy or something happening. Kids that are being disinherited. Or, it, 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 the, the, the circumstances are never positive, even if there's a legitimate marriage in each of those circumstances. Even God even warns them, you get a king, he's going to take all your girls. They get a king, he takes all their girls. They didn't listen. No. So even though God accommodates it for a period of time, there's, there's negative consequences or fallout. Okay, so with regard to problems then, uh, here's some, we've sort of already gotten into this, but here's some big problems with naturalism. There really is, at the end of the day, no such thing as value. And we have no value. Now, I don't know about you, but that offends me. There's something that offends me about the declaration, I have no value. Maybe I'm just being selfish. Maybe I'm just trying to preserve my DNA. But there's something that offends me about someone saying to me, well, you, you actually have no value. There are no absolutes. The best response to that is, are you absolutely sure? Uh, and as such things like metaphysics, metaphysics asks the questions, what is, the, what is there and what is it like? So questions of being, of reality. Epistemology, we've already talked about that. That's the study of knowledge. 
are unstable and meaningless. I mean, if you answer the question, have you answered it absolutely? There's no absolutes. Really, if one thinks about it, science is based upon hypotheses, theories, and a certain measure of absolutes. But it's within a framework that denies absolutes, at least on a moral level. What could be more natural than religious belief? So let's think about this. Let's say for a moment that we're naturalists. So what we're doing is we're just, everything that is true and right, we're going to observe it within the created order. Just the creator. We're not going to talk about God. We're not going to talk about spirits and angels and demons and all that. We're just going to look at the world as it is. We're going to look at the world and observe what we see. Well, here's what we will find. We will find, law of gravity, uh, we will find religious beliefs across the globe. We will find desire in all people. We will find intentions. We will find the use and understanding of speech. We don't have to get all churchy in order to see those things. We don't even have to be theists to see those things. We will see those as, in fact, part of natural phenomenon within the created world. Are these not natural, everyday, familiar, run-of-the-mill phenomena? They're not weird, they're not spooky, they're not paranormal, they're not occult. More to the point, beliefs, desires, meaningful use of language belong in their own right to what, on any reasonable construal, is to be termed the world of nature. It's part of our nature as human beings to form beliefs, to have desires, to have intentions, and to act on them. This is true within all cultures. So just in saying that, we must admit that the scientific method is inadequate even to evaluate just the natural world, even if there is no God. So that needs to be considered. Supposed benefits to naturalism include, well, it appears to be rational, honest, and objective. I think there's certain aspects of it that are rational, honest, and objective, and I'm just pointing out that there's some aspects that aren't. It appears to be to many to be coherent based on sensory perception, assuming that sensory perception is all that there is to perceive. By the way, sensory perception in and of itself is inadequate even to receive information. So I, I, I think I mentioned this to you last week. Let's talk about speech. If you think about it, there's a lot of things that take place in the process of speaking. So I have... A body and on top of it is a head and there's this hard thing called a skull and inside of it there's a brain and it's working away and thinking and all that kind of stuff and through a series of processes it is taking those thoughts and organizing them into sounds and those sounds are organized into phrases and sentences and paragraphs and concepts and all that kind of stuff 
And the sound travels through the air in waves. It enters your ears. It rattles around in some little bones in your ears, and it's processed in your mind. And almost instantaneously, what's in my head, which you can't see, is in your head. Now, I just got to say, there's, there's a lot that took place there, isn't there? Even to hear those words. I mean, there's, there's a lot more than, than just uh, a word and acknowledgement of that word. There's a lot of stuff that takes place even for speech to be possible. A lot of sort of hard to explain kind of stuff. And sometimes I think in uh, evolutionary theory, for instance, which is just one, one form of naturalism, there's not a lot of thought put into like the details of how things work. The complexity of how things work. And if any one of the links in the chain of speech and understanding is removed, there is no speech. So take some scissors and cut my tongue out, and it's just not possible anymore. Or do something to my brain, like put an ice pick in it. It's not going to work. Ooh, that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> and it's not going to work properly. Or take some compound, stuff it in your ears or damage the bones in your ears, and it's not going to work anymore. So everything kind of has to be there all at once for it to be possible. So um, Joy Beggs was telling me at break, you know, I think, Joy, you did a master's degree in evolutionary theory or something? Okay. Okay. Yeah, so um, we're just talking a little bit about, um, okay, the eye. We could use the eye as an example. So let's assume that through a series of gradual processes, the eye and all of its complexity developed. Well, um, let's assume that the process went extremely fast and only took five generations. Well, why would the four generations leading up to the full formation of a functional eye, what would be the trigger or the mechanism to cause those generations to start to evolve and adapt something that for multiple generations isn't even usable? Like what, what would bring about that process? What's the mechanism, the stimulus for that? How does that happen? Now, um, in reality, most would probably say, well, it took far more than five. It could have taken hundreds of millions of years based on survival of the species. Well, why would these species be interested in putting energy and what would be the mechanism to put energy into the development of an eye that something, some higher life form many, many generations later would finally get to benefit from? Without even knowing what sight is, without experiencing sight, what's the mechanism that brings that about? So this is an, an interesting question. If the world is just sort of based on random choices and just sort of happens. Well, why, why does this kind of stuff happen in the world? Well, then they might say, well, there's punctuated equilibrium where it, there's periods of time where there's slow progression, then it sort of shoots up like very quickly within a couple generations it happens. Well, okay, that's convenient, but there's no evidence for that. It's a convenient and maybe even a logical explanation given your system. If you accept the tenets of your system, okay, let's give you that. I would still ask, what's the mechanism, and how do you know? 
It's philosophy at that point, which means it's actually outside of natural law. So then all you're doing is admitting to the fact that not everything is really knowable according to your very objective, very coherent scientific worldview or system. Mm -hmm. So we have theistic evolution, where some would give a tip of the hat to the evolutionists and say, well, yeah, it did happen, but God oversaw it. But in fact, those that give a tip of the hat to the evolutionists do it because they believe in evolution in the first place, can't reconcile it with Christianity, and so in an attempt to do so, throw God into the equation as the mechanism. And you solve the problem for the naturalist. They like you for it, but they still don't worship your God. There was other problems with that, a minor one being it does violence to the nature of Scripture. Just a minor one. and revelation as a whole. Okay, so natural, here's some uh, forms, some subcategories of naturalism. One would be materialistic naturalism. Materialistic naturalism asserts that matter is the only reality and that all the laws of the universe are reducible to mechanical laws. Well, love isn't because it's possible to fall in love with someone that everyone else thinks you probably shouldn't. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's possible to be stupidly in love. And even if you're rightfully in love, I don't think my wife would appreciate it if I were to say to her, I'm in love with you based upon mechanical laws. Right. So we have materialistic naturalism. We have secular humanism, the belief that humans have value, but it's derived solely from the natural realm. So we've talked about that a little bit in a sense. And then Marxism is the belief that, I mean, it, Marxism in a sense is, uh, there's, a, there's a, an, an aspect in which you have to appreciate the motivation of the Marxist. But it's the belief that the human, that human would come of age with the abolishment of all conditions which debased or enslaved or threatened human progress. So Marx worked toward a classless society where all were treated equal, and in the process, all were treated very poorly, by the way. All work together for the good of the whole. It's more like all work together for the good of the whole, the whole being defined as those who are ruling the supposed whole. But morality wasn't really part of the equation. Morality was, in Marxist theory, irrelevant to, its goal, to this goal. It wasn't a moral. Marxism failed largely because it had no moral base. If Marxism had a moral base, it actually might have worked if they actually showed respect for people. But when you try to work toward a class of society and someone says, I don't want to be part of a class of society, and you kill them, it's a little bit of a problem. And then we have atheism, the belief that there is no God. Atheism is the belief that God does not exist. So atheists typically, not all, but typically reject God for humanistic reasons or because they have interpreted scientific data from a materialistic worldview. So again, when you're talking to someone, you got to, just because someone doesn't, isn't a Christian doesn't mean they're an atheist necessarily in terms of their worldview category. So you sort of got to identify, is this an atheist or is this a deist or pantheist or everything is God, or 
uh, an agnostic that says, well, I just can't know. So there's some naturalists that are agnostics that say, I just, I just can't know. They're in the kind of the maybe camp. And there's atheists that says, absolutely not. So a reasoned approach, again, I showed you this earlier on the board. Um, what you want to do if you're talking to an atheist is you want to move them from there is no God to there may be a God, hopefully, by God's grace, to there is a God. So moving from no to maybe, I've given you this already, you simply ask the question, are you God? No, there, I don't believe in God, so obviously I'm not God. <clears throat> okay, well, do you know everything that there is to know? Now, atheists at their core often affirm some measure of self-divinity, that they are the sort of the top of the pile in their own world, self-determining, determine their own fate, and all that kind of stuff. But like I said, you, you, can, you can take everybody to the point where they have to admit that they don't know everything. And if they still tell you, you know, they know everything, then ask them a skill-testing question that, you know, they won't know. You know, what was the name of my first dog? You know, or whatever it might be. Or a more difficult question. And you can, it's not that difficult to show that someone doesn't know everything. So then ask them, well, how much of reality do you know? So what you might do is draw like a circle. This is a good illustration. So you just draw a circle, right? You say, let's assume that that circle knows or represents everything that is knowable. Everything. And I'll just, within your realm, everything in, in all of the sciences, in all of mathematics, in all of sociology, in all of psychology, everything to do with geography and geology and geophysics and all this other stuff, if this represents just all human knowledge that currently exists on planet Earth, so the combined knowledge of every of the seven billion people that live on planet Earth, out of that pool of knowledge, every aspect of knowledge, how much do you know personally? Well, you've got to have a, a really extremely arrogant person to draw a dot that big. <laughs> but even if they say, well, I know all of this, they're probably, you're probably visiting them in the psych ward if they say that. <laughs> but even if they say, well, I know a lot, the point is they don't know everything. And so then one might say, well, then at least you need to be honest and say you can't dismiss the concept of God absolutely, absolutely and conclusively. So then they're in the maybe camp. So then is it possible that there might be a God? And that's just how, again, that's just one move, but it's actually a quite a significant move. That to be a, it's one thing to be a practical atheist, to not think about God, not concern yourself with God, but to be a philosophical atheist and to be absolutely 110% sure uh, that, that you're right is actually difficult to prove. Now, it's actually interesting because, think about this. Atheists are naturalists. The naturalist says all knowledge is defined and described within the created world. And because they don't know all of that, and will admit that they don't know all of that, they at least have to perhaps say, well, there's a possibility that I'm wrong. Now, if you want to be nice, and in a sense intellectually honest, and they say to you, well, you're a theist, right? Yeah. Do you know everything that there is to know? No, I don't. Well, then is it possible 
that you're wrong? Well, I would respond, well, in fact, from a naturalistic perspective, yeah, I would have to admit to you that I might be wrong. But I have something you don't have. I have revelation. I have a second source of knowledge that you won't admit to. And in this other realm of revelation, I have actually encountered God. And so while that may not be convincing for you, myself, I can be 100% sure that I'm right and still be intellectually honest. Because not all of my truth comes from that circle. I have another circle out here, right? And it's called revelation. So, in fact, while on one hand, one might say that we have to give them a brownie point if we get a brownie point, or give them a win if we get a win, on the other hand, it's not really true. Because my source of knowledge is somewhat different than their source of knowledge, or at least I have a source of knowledge in my worldview, in addition to their source of knowledge. So that's an argument that you could use. Again, it won't convince them. It won't convince them, but it can give you assurance that you don't need to prove God based upon rational evidences. Okay, um, we have about five, we have about seven minutes. So I don't want to move any further. I just want to have a conversation. Questions, comments, things you want to share with the class, ideas, John. Sorry, just the first part. Could you just repeat? I didn't. I want to give you another method to move someone. Oh, okay. So he's going to give us another another method to move someone from no to maybe. <laughs> Thank you. What methods do you use to disprove something? Okay. 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 <laughs> Can you guys hear them in the back? Okay. Something that's self-referentially incoherent, like a round triangle or a married bachelor. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, our concept of God is, in fact, quite coherent, properly understood. I mean, there obviously are people that mis misinterpret or misidentify or skew the nature of God, and therefore he seems to be a confusing God. Like, does he love people or hate them? Why is he sending people to heaven and people to hell? But if you do good theology, God is a coherent being. There's nothing about the concept of God that isn't intrinsically incoherent. Even if you don't agree with God, there's nothing in the concept of God by itself that's incoherent, like your two previous illustrations. So once you show someone that, then they ought to 
Okay. Okay, good. So let's just repeat this. This is more for my benefit, but maybe you'll benefit from it as well. So you would say to someone who's an atheist, what, um, how would you prove something not to be true? Okay, what, like what, what would be your standards or your, uh, what, what would have to be missing for something not to be true? And John says, well, it would have to be in, basically intrinsically incoherent, like the square or the round triangle or the married bachelor. Or the other one was, you can't find it? Yeah, it, it shows something, not that something is not true, but that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay, so then the concept of God, can you prove that God doesn't exist? Is that your argument? Because, you know, we can prove that there are no elephants on Mars. <clears throat> okay. Okay. <coughs> yeah. Even if he's even if he's living on a far off planet that we haven't got to yet. Say what? Okay, Kolob. Okay. Is that like from Star Trek or something? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Good. No, I like that. That's good. Okay, other uh, comments or questions or ideas? What's the hardest you think to, what was so weird to an atheist, to atheist? Well, theoretically, the easiest person to witness to is a Roman Catholic because all of the there's, there's a huge commonality of beliefs. We just differ on the nature of salvation. Now, that's a big just. There's something that happened as a result of that called the Reformation. That was a joke. Um, kind of a significant point in human history. Uh, but it is one very specific doctrinal difference as opposed to, well, does God exist? Is Jesus Christ true? Did the virgin birth happen? I mean, we agree on all that stuff. There's even some measure of deference to the Bible. So in theory, that can be, uh, there can be, uh, maybe in a sense it's easier because the commonalities are all there. Where um, at the same time, it can be very difficult because, especially in Canada, because it's like, well, who cares what difference does it really make? just a minor minor thing. I have found because of the cultural connections to Islam, because Islam is a world religion, but it's very focused on just basically two or three cultural groups, some Asians, some South Asians, and some Arabs, for the most part, some Africans, that because it's so tied into culture that the biggest problem with witnessing and sharing your faith with um, Islam is you're actually asking them to deny everything. Their mother, their father, their culture. Uh, to, you're even saying you can eat pork. I mean, there's even a dietary thing here, right? So that's, that's huge. When you pull someone out of their culture. Now, I mean, Jesus talks about that. Whoever loves his mother, father, 
you know, or if you, if you, if you, if you want to follow me, you got to hate your mother, your father, your brother, all that kind of stuff, right? So we say, well, spiritually, that's the call, but it's a lot easier for a person raised in a Bible-believing Christian home that just has never professed faith to be, have the gospel shared with them because they can still be friends with their mom and dad. It might even increase their relationship with them than someone who has to give it all up and maybe depending on the, the, the country they're in, even be put to death for it. So that's very difficult. Fi- but philosophically, they, they are theists, and they are one of the Abrahamic religions. So there's some, there's some commonalities there. There's even, a com- there's even commonality with uh, issues of morality. I mean, we should join hands with the Muslims in champion, championing the, uh, the value of uh, the unborn, this kind of thing. Philosophically, though, because they're basically on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, um, I mean, atheists are, are a tough breed because you, you basically you can't even get to the Bible until you try to work through all this philosophical stuff. So that can be difficult. Um, so the, the, the easiest person to share the gospel with and, and have success is someone who is a theist that has some general notion of Christianity and who is at a point of crisis in their life. because they're soft. And oftentimes you, you have greater success there. Yeah. Were you going to say something or ask a follow-up question? I, just, I wonder why some people, some non-evangelical Christians are angry when you try to get It's not like they don't care or whatever, whatever I have a sense. There's actually <coughs> a sense of, I get, people are angry. Like, I think because they know whether you're, if you're the politest person on the planet, if you are in any way, shape, or form implying that the God they worship or their understanding of the Christian faith is deficient, there's something very personal about that. And so they're defensive. So you, you're, you're trying to be very great. And we just, hey, we're all Canadians, folks. We ourselves are resistant even to. In a, in a healthy conversation, evaluating or telling jokes about each other's culture or the denominations we were raised in. Like, ooh, don't, don't step on my toes. So we're, we're extremely tolerant. We are uh, very reluctant to even in a joking way point out differences between one another. And so how much more difficult it is when you're actually dealing with something of importance and substance. Right. So these are... Well, obviously, you want to be tactful. You want to evaluate your approach. You want to be gracious. You know, you want to use your words and your approach to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to attack you, but I care for you. You want to imply all that grace and that tact and respect and love and all that kind of thing. Uh, pray for them. But, I mean, ultimately, they may be angry. I mean, you might be <clears throat> as gracious as Mother Teresa, and nevertheless, they still might be angry with you. People are people, right? We have, we're not, our, our emotional responses are not always consistent, logical, or helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's very offensive to a lot of people. Yeah. Okay, well, have a great evening, and uh, drive safe. We'll see you next week.